to preach for us. Thank you, guys. Good morning, church. It's good to see everybody, and it is good to see everybody. If you're not here with us, you're watching on live stream, I'm so glad that you are tuning in with us. If you have a Bible, please make your way to the Gospel of John, Gospel of John chapter 3. I'm going to do my best, as Pastor has done so well uh, in the midst of these quarantine, COVID-related services that we're having to try and keep mine as briefly as possible, while at the same time extrapolating as much as we can out of John 3 um, through the sermon. Uh, Praying about, uh, I've always, I'm always excited, always willing to step in and, and fill in for, for Pastor Greg whenever he's not available, and today's no different. It's always one thing that I make it a, a point to want to um, be real, be true to Scripture, most importantly, and also to, to share with you not just opinions or thoughts or ideas that I have or that come to me as though I have some ultra special or superior connection to God than you do simply because I'm on staff at a church. Pastor Greg would say the same thing. Brother Dale would say the same thing. Every person who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit is a child of God and therefore has access to God themselves. Some of us are called to shepherd uh, God's people and to preach his word, while everyone else is uh, called to different ministries and called to different things within their own lives to be able to be good stewards of God's word and also to be great commission-minded, making disciples regardless of where we are, regardless of what our title may be. So I do not stand in this pulpit ever, hopefully, with an attitude of arrogance, um, but I do want us to be able to look into God's word and be able to see the things that God has been showing me all week through his word and for you to be allowed to see those things as well as though it is plain as day to you as it has been made to me this week. Uh, so John 3 is where we will be. John chapter 3, the title of this sermon, uh, I've wrestled with, with titles. I, I, I never want to appear more clever or manipulating of a, of a text in order to better fit what I want to say. But So titles are things that I tend to struggle with. But the title of this sermon would be, based on the, the things that we're going to see and the observations we're going to make out of John 3, is beholding the Word of God. I'm sorry, I don't have a PowerPoint for you, uh, so you just have to listen. Um, beholding the Word of God, and then a subtext, a subtitle, would be the security of the believer is the sufficiency of Scripture. Beholding the Word of God, the security of the believer is the sufficiency of Scripture. John chapter 3, verse 1, verses 1 through 21 if you have found it, please follow along with me. After we read the text, we will pray. John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? 
Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Patient and covered in grace, Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, and you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so too must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may, not, may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment the light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, We adore you. Lord, without you, none of us would be here. Physically, spiritually, everything about us is wrapped up in everything about you. Lord, you've given us very clear, very precise evidence of your existence, but only the, the creation and, and our conscience can only get us so far. Lord, we praise you that you're not only a powerful God, you are a speaking God. You've spoken to us through the prophets in the Old Testament. You've spoken to us through your messengers. But most importantly, you have spoken directly to us through your word. God, I pray that this morning, as we look at this conversation that Nicodemus had with the Logos, the, the word of God, sitting face to face with the very word of God, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, that we would hear Christ's words that we would believe your word and that we would be transformed by it. Lord, there are so many things in our world today that cause so many of us to be anxious and to be afraid. Lord, help us to view scripture 
higher than we do. The sufficiency of Scripture gives us security and hope in a time where it seems like those two things are most hated above all. Lord, speak for your servants are listening. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. And on January 6th, 1850, in Colchester, England, a teenage boy was going through a very difficult time. He had been raised in church his, his whole life. His father and his grandfather were both pastors. And one day on January 6th, he was not able to get to the church that he normally attended for, for different, a different reason. I'm not sure, entirely sure which, what it was. But he made his way to a local church in the area where a church member was filling in for the pastor. The pastor was, was gone somewhere. The preacher was, was absent. And so church member was filling in. And the church member didn't have much to say except for what the text had said. His text was Isaiah 45, 22, and it was, Look unto me and be saved, all you nations. This boy, months before, had been struggling with his, the assurance of his salvation. He'd been struggling with the, with the sufficiency of God's word to be able to convict and to be able to transform lives. And in fact, when he was in the, in the congregation, the preacher spotted him. And notice that he looked miserable. That there were so many things just visibly on his face that was bothering him. Things that were troubling him. Things that were causing him to, to lose sleep over and causing him to, to doubt so many things of God. He looked out into the audience, into the congregation at the, the young man. and said, young man, you look miserable. Look unto Jesus. And on January 6th, 1850, Charles Spurgeon put his faith in Christ. Spurgeon beheld what truly convicts and transforms. In faith, he looked to Christ. And we see in this text, Nicodemus is face-to-face with Jesus. A Pharisee. Some observations about this is that very, very, one of the first things that's mentioned, he's a Pharisee. He knew the Old Testament. He'd been trained in it from a young age. It was all, it was all his life was wrapped up in was understanding and being able to communicate the Old Testament. This gives us more clarity. Back in John chapter 1, Verse 9, it says that the light, speaking of the Word of God, Jesus himself, verse 9 says the true light, the Word of God, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came into his own, and his own people did not receive him. They were face to face with the Creator, and they did not see him. They could not behold him. Because they did not have faith. There's a difference. Seeing is not believing. Believing 
is seen. A man who is a Pharisee, he's a, he's a ruler of the Jews. He's a very reputable person, probably a very moral person. And it's interesting that in verse 2, he comes to him and he addresses Christ with respect as a rabbi, as a teacher, as a fellow teacher. Over in verse, uh, verse 10, Jesus says, are you not the teacher of Israel? So there's, there's a mutual respect there for, the, for the, the professions that they have. One person has been trained his entire life in the Old Testament and by the, the religious leaders. Another one is a carpenter who astonished religious, religious leaders with what he knew and how he taught with authority. And so there's mutual respect there. And he says, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus is is a representative of the fact that not every Pharisee had such a hard heart towards Jesus. Not every Pharisee opposed Jesus, though the majority of them did. Nicodemus genuinely does, if if not he's the only one, if he is the only one, he is genuinely searching for the truth. He had seen it back up in verse 23 of chapter 2. It says that Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast and were doing signs that caused many people to believe. But because he knew what was already in man, he did not entrust himself to them. Because it's really easy for them to see and want to be entertained and follow Jesus for what's about to happen. We see that in John chapter 6 when Jesus feeds the 5,000. He goes across to the other side of the sea. The people follow him. They wake up realizing he's not there. They go and they follow him, and Jesus addresses their exact exact condition. He says, you're not here because you saw this miracle, and you trusted in God and put your faith in him. You're here because you're still hungry. You're here because you want another meal. It's very easy to see the miraculous things and to only be concerned with the miraculous, but every time Christ did a miracle, it was supposed to be, and it was directly tied to his message. Anytime we hear about miracles or signs being done in absence of, the, of the, the message of Christ, we ought to be hesitant to accept that. The sufficiency of Scripture here shows us that it is, Scripture is able to convict, to transform to expose our true nature and to extend to us hope. The 1689 London Baptist Confession, which I I strongly encourage anybody to to read, it is one of the pillars of Baptist doctrine and Baptist confession of faith. But, But on the topic of the Holy Scriptures, it has this to say about the sufficiency of them. The Holy Scriptures are the only sufficient certain and infallible standard of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. The light of nature and the works of creation and goodness and wisdom and power of God that people are left without excuse. However, these demonstrations are not sufficient to give the knowledge of God and His will that that is necessary for salvation. Therefore, the Lord was pleased at different times and in various ways to reveal Himself and to declare His will to His church to preserve and to propagate the truth better and to establish and comfort the church with greater certainty against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and the world. The sufficiency of Scripture allows us to understand that that is where our security lies. 
people would try to argue that because Baptists uphold the, the, the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture, somehow we worship the Bible, and that's not the case. Because you cannot divorce God's Word, Christ's Word, from Himself. John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, the Word of God, in essence, in nature, in every respect, in every concept of who God was. And this Word, in verse 14, became flesh. So we uphold Scripture the same way we uphold Christ as the standard for all obedience and all living in matters of faith. And here, Jesus is with a man who has been taught the Scriptures his entire life. And yet he was more blind than anyone else. A religious and spiritual person who does not understand the essence of Scripture and how everything points to Christ is more blind than the person who cannot see an inch in front of themselves. It's interesting that this man named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, a well-mannered, well-upheld man in the community, a teacher, comes to Jesus and Jesus sees through his interaction. He sees to the heart of what's really going on. Notice the two things that Nicodemus points out when he first addresses Jesus. We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs if you are not from God. The teaching means about the content and the doctrine of which Christ was teaching, but for some reason it was the signs that Nicodemus was most peculiar about. He came to Jesus, maybe even hoping to see a sign. It says that he came by night. I don't know if that's necessarily because he was ashamed or because he wanted to to come in secrecy as though the other Pharisees would try to stop him. Or maybe it was just because so many people were following him, he just wanted a quiet, uninterrupted conversation with the truth. And so Jesus speaks directly into his life. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In fact, in the text that we just read, all the way down to verse 21, uh, Jesus uses four different illustrations to help communicate this truth of being born again to a person who has, known the, has been taught the Scriptures his entire life, but does not know the truth, does not have the faith that is required to, to be saved. He uses the, uh, the illustration of birth, a universal experience for all who are alive. It's been that way since Cain and Abel were born. Universal experience of being born. So much so to where Nicodemus, with his, his massive amount of information and knowledge, is confused. He's confused because he is, like many others, though he is extremely well-educated and extremely well-versed in the Old Testament, he is equally as confused as anyone would be because he's fixated on the physical, material sign. How can a man be born Again, can he re-enter his mother's womb at an old age? And that's the thing that, that, that separated Christ from any other teacher. He takes a physical thing but exposes the truth about how it is more than the physical. This life is much more than the physical. Yes, God does care about the physical. He will when he returns. He will raise up the physical. He is not done with the physical body, but that is not the end. That is, that, that is not the, the goal of Christ in redemption. 
It is to restore us spiritually to our Creator. And this man, with all his knowledge and with all his information, he's confused. So Christ again says to him in verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, birth, physical birth, universal, natural birth, and of the Spirit, supernatural, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Your physical birth and the supernatural birth have absolutely nothing to do with you. And that's Christ's point of using the birth analogy, the birth illustration. You had nothing to contribute to your physical birth, and you have nothing to contribute to to your spiritual birth. Nothing. How many of you in this room decided that before you were born, I wanted to be this kind of person with this, this height, this much hair, this, uh, th- th- this eye color, whatever it was? How many of you got that checklist at the very beginning before it happened? Nobody, right? Even great athletes, right? People who are monstrously tall and extraordinarily large, they didn't get a, get a ballot and be like, hey, what would you prefer in life. Do you want to be really big? Do you want to play basketball? Do you want to play football? Do you want to run really fast? They didn't get that. Everyone starts at the same level. And that level is, it had nothing to do with you. And he uses the same thing about spiritual birth. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with what is revealed by God about you and how that hope is to be experienced in your life not based on what we, we say or our opinions about it. He says, unless one, one is, uh, verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel. Do not be surprised. I can't imagine the look on Nicodemus' face because we don't have that explicitly for us in the text, but I'm sure he was super confused. What are you talking about, being born again? And Jesus says, don't, don't be surprised by that. And then he uses the second analogy, the wind. The wind blows where it wishes. Jesus is so good about the words that he chooses to use. Wind in both Hebrew and in Greek is the word also for spirit. In Job 33.2, uh, sorry, 33.4 talks about how uh, God has breathed life. God has, God has given life through his breath, and the spirit of God dwells upon them. Uh, John 20, verse 22, later on in the, in the, toward the, at the end of John's gospel itself, Let's turn there real quick so I can give you the actual reference. John 20, verse 22. says again, when he, uh, And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. This, this notion of breath, this notion of the wind, this notion of the Spirit, intricately tied together. Acts 2, verse 2, When the Holy Spirit descends upon them, a rushing wind comes into the upper room, and the Holy Spirit descends upon them. He says, the, the wind, back in chapter 3, verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. Wind is mysterious. You cannot see the wind. You, may only, you can only see and experience the effects of the wind. And we ought to know that better than anybody here in Oklahoma. Come storm season, we see the effects of the wind, but the wind itself we cannot see. We just see what the wind picks up what the wind blows up. But the effects of the wind is, is mysterious, and it's interesting that he uses this word wind. Jesus uses wind to talk about a rebirth because it's, Nicodemus would have known this. Ezekiel chapter 37, when it talks about the valley of dry bones coming alive, what happens? Ezekiel prophesies over the valley of dry bones. 
Sorry. He prophesies over the valley of dry bones. And what happens? God brings the entire valley to life through the wind, through his own breath. It's so interesting that Nicodemus is sitting face to face with the word of God, being taught the things that he's been taught his entire life, and is so blind to, to everything that's being said. Verse 9, how can these things be? Nicodemus was coming maybe to have a good conversation, maybe to have a little bit of a dialogue, or maybe a little bit of a, a back and forth uh, dispute about certain things that he was doing, or about these signs that he had seen. He certainly wasn't expecting to sit down and be schooled by a Nazarene carpenter. How can these things be? And Jesus identifies his role as a teacher of Israel. Are you not? One, one commentator said he was probably, one of his major roles was probably being a major teacher. Are you not the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? And basically, verse, 12, verse 11 wraps up in, if I use a common, everyday, earthly example for you, and you still do not understand what I am trying to communicate to you, then you will not understand the heavenly things. 1 Corinthians tells us very clearly that the natural man cannot discern the things of God because it is only by the Spirit that we can have understanding of what it means. Those two things are infinitely and divinely intricate and related to one another. The Spirit of God illuminating the Word of God in our lives. And the thing is, it happens every time in the life of of one who is God's. Verse 12, or verse 13. He, gives a, he goes into his third illustration. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Moses. We've been hearing about Moses a lot on Sundays. Moses leading these people. Moses leading the Israelites out of, out of Egypt after the, the plagues. This is, a, this is a separate account. This is a separate um, story that comes out of the book of Numbers when they're already in the wilderness. Surprise, surprise, Israel in the wilderness starts grumbling, starts complaining, starts getting upset about what God has done for them. We just saw that just recently. They're not too far into the wilderness already on Sundays with Pastor Greg, and they're already complaining, let alone years into the wilderness. And it's still the same cycle. Not content, not content. Oh, awesome, something awesome, some sign happens. God's word comes again. His message comes to be faithful to me, whatever it may be, to not just do what I have told you to do, but have faith in the things that I have promised to you, and that's how you do them. It's a vicious cycle for Israel. Honestly, it's a vicious cycle for us because we have, we have the experience of the, of the Israelites. We have the experiences of the early church and how God spoke into those things, and we still make the same mistakes. We still are entrapped and still entangled with the same sins. But in Numbers 21, the, uh, the, the specific uh, rebellion of the Israelites brought upon a bunch of snakes. A bunch of snakes that were biting. A bunch of snakes that were uh, attacking the Israelites. And anyone who was bitten by it would eventually, it would eventually lead to death. 
but we have an intercessor. We have Moses, a picture of Christ in the Old Testament. We have Moses interceding on his people's behalf to, to make a bronze serpent, to lift it up high in the air, and not having to go up and touch it, not having to chant to it, not having to do anything else other than to behold it would these people's afflictions be completely and totally removed. If you were bitten by the serpents, all you needed to do was to look and to behold the serpent that was lifted up by Moses, and you'd be healed. There's a reason why Christ uses that example and that illustration specifically. Just as the Son of Man, be, just as the serpent be lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. This nature of being lifted up is is has dual meanings. The lifting up of Christ on the cross and his crucifixion, his death. But praise God, his scripture, his word tells us he didn't stay there. Because three days later, he was lifted up again and remains where he is to this very day from where he was over 2,000 years ago. This dual nature of being lifted up as both the sacrifice and as the accomplisher of what is absolutely necessary to be a child of God, to have faith in, to look and to behold Christ on the cross, dead, buried, lifted up in his resurrection, conquering death, hell, and the grave. And then he explains for us in verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. This is quite possibly the most famous verse in the Bible. So much so to where it gets more attention than the example and the illustration of the serpent, and it gets much more attention than the couple of verses following. So listen, listen again to this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, that whoever People get tripped up about that, whoever. Whoever believes in him. The emphasis is not on the whoever, the emphasis is on the believing. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For, and then verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. You know why? He explains it to us, which is really nice but in order that the world might be saved through him. For whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already. It does not take much time to watch the news, to spend time on social media, to notice the doctrine of total depravity within the human condition. And that is not to say that every human being is as evil as they possibly could be, but it does say that each and every area of our lives, spiritually, physically, mentally, every area of a person's life is touched and is stained by the sinful nature. You are a sinner, therefore you sin. You do not sin, and that makes you a sinner. Your very nature, my very nature, the nature of the Israelites, the nature of Nicodemus, as moral as he was, as much as he knew, wasn't enough. It wasn't sufficient. It wasn't the authority to be able to say to God, I, I've been taught. I've been taught all my life what the, what the Bible says. 
Because you can be taught all the highlights of God. You can, you can hear all the things. You can have all the intellectual knowledge that you possibly can. If it is not a true transformation of your heart, then it doesn't matter how much you know. 16 inches, 16, roughly, 16 inches from your head to your heart is enough knowledge to damn you through creation and through your conscience. But thanks be to God that he didn't leave it there. Thanks be to God that he didn't just reveal to us his eternal power and his divine nature through creation and through, through our conscience of what is moral. He stepped into our world. He became like us to show us that what he has to say is important. That's Isaiah 55. My word will not return void. My word, my word will do what I have sent it to accomplish. It is interesting that he uses those words in the Hebrew, that Isaiah uses those words, and then you find in John chapter 1, the word became flesh. Everything Christ came to accomplish, he did, and he doesn't need us to help him out. Scripture is sufficient. Psalm 19. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, revealing, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether, more to be desired than gold, even more, much more than fine gold, sweeter than honey, dripping, that's dripping from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them, by the scriptures, is your servant warned, and by keeping them do we receive a great reward. This great reward is not a physical thing. This great reward is the understanding of who Christ truly is. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart that cannot be understood in any other way other than when you understand and see who God is, you see who you are in light of who he is, and you understand, I cannot keep going on the way that I am. I am not my own. I am bought with the price through Christ. He is the one who is highly lifted up. And if I just look to him and behold him in faith, he saves me radically. He gives me a new heart, as it says also in Ezekiel, that I will give them a heart to know me. The last illustration that he uses, that Christ uses to show the sufficiency of Scripture is one that's very common, light and darkness. Verse 19, this is the judgment. Why are we already condemned, as it said in verse 18? Because of our sinful nature. It is made clear to us, and then he explains it even more so in verse 19. This is the judgment. This is why we are condemned. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. Because their works were centered on themselves. The most evil thing that we can possibly believe in this world is that we as finite, created individuals are autonomous that we in and of ourselves are sufficient to determine who we are, to determine what we believe, and to determine how I'm supposed to be comforted through those things. We do not get to determine who we are. We may have differing ideas. 
The world is full of differing opinions and ideas. But nobody, nothing that has been created, nothing that has, that has a beginning gets to determine the way it was supposed to be used or the way that it was supposed to be. That is supernaturally imposed upon everything that has a beginning by the one who began it. It doesn't matter political affiliations, gender identity, sexual orientation, morality. It doesn't matter any, any, of, those, any of those differing opinions that we have that we see that are so polarizing in today's, day, in today's society. It doesn't matter. Scripture stands as the authoritative word of God, and it is sufficient to tell us who we are. I believe that it is so, it is such a, we're seeing a little bit of a resurgence as we did back in the Reformation, but it is so sad to see churches, it is so sad to see within myself the low view of Scripture's sufficiency, that it is enough to show me who God is, to show me how I am His, to show me what I am apart from His, to expose and to peel back the layers of my heart that are so wicked and sinful. And instead of running to God, we run away from Him. We fill our lives with programs. We fill our lives with all other kinds of external things that, that keep us from being able to really pay attention to what truly matters. And that is the Word of God. He has revealed Himself through His Word. Therefore, we ought to spend more time in it. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. And does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. It is so much more comforting. It is so much more, sin is so much more enjoyable in the dark when we think no one else is watching. But God is light. In him there is no darkness. Scripture uh, says in Hebrews chapter 4 that the word of God is sharper than any two edged sword, able to pierce to the heart of who we are, to divide joint from marrow, to discern the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And I think that's the reason why we stay so far away from it. We don't want to be shown who we really are. We want to build up our status. We want to build up our, our lives with the opinions and the thoughts that we have because our opinions and our thoughts are more authoritative than Scripture itself. We don't say that. But everyone who does wicked things, hates the light and does not come to the light. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen, that you may clearly behold without a shadow of a doubt, that you may see greater than you have ever seen before, that any corrective lenses could ever give you, that any amount of religious activity or spirituality could ever promise you, that you may clearly see that his works have been carried out in God. Scripture is sufficient to peel back the veil of God and to reveal to us his true nature. Exodus 19, the people of Israel are not allowed to go up onto the mountain where, where Moses is. And God made it very clear, do not come here. Do not even touch this mountain. If you touch it, you will die. Moses went up as an, as an intercessor, as a mediator between the covenant of God and the covenant of man. But we don't, we don't worship Moses. Nicodemus did. 
We don't worship Moses. We worship one who is far greater. Moses was just a type. He was just a picture. A picture of the veiled God. In Christ, we see him. In Christ, we are face to face with love himself. In Hebrews, it says, so let us in boldness come to the throne of grace. In Exodus, you couldn't even touch the mountain. Through Christ, we can go straight into his presence. We know this and we affirm this and we believe this because Scripture is sufficient, because Christ is sufficient. And to divorce Christ from his word or his word from Christ is to do his disservice and to abuse his very nature. It peels back the veil of God and reveals his true nature. Scripture is also sufficient to expose our real character, but also extend to us real hope. Our real character, just like Nicodemus. He had to get to the heart of what was going on with Nicodemus' conversation. You have all these things going on. You're a rabbi. You're a teacher, Nicodemus. But chapter 2 says that Jesus knows all things that were in man and knew exactly what he was there for. He wasn't there just to have a, a nice discussion or a nice conversation or dialogue. He was there to seek truth. And it was Christ who came to him. Sure, Nicodemus physically came, but Christ is the one, the light is the one that came into the world. Christ pursues us, and his word is sufficient. Our hearts are deceitfully wicked. That's the real nature. That's who we really are at the core. But 1 Peter chapter 1 also says that we have been made alive because of God. We have been given a new hope. He has caused us to be born again. Same words as Christ himself. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Scripture is sufficient to transform creatures of wrath into children of God. Ephesians 2, dead in our sins, objects of his wrath, separated from God. What can a dead person do? Nothing. And we deceive ourselves and we determine for ourselves that simply because we have breath in our lungs, blood in our veins, we deceive ourselves into thinking we have life. This is not it. And he transforms wicked, sinful creatures of wrath into children of God. 2 Corinthians 5. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. That he became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Scripture is sufficient to divide also and to unite. To divide the same way that light is divided from darkness. Matthew 10, 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace. I have come to bring a sword there is nothing more divisive than the Word of God. There is nothing more divisive than Christ himself. In fact, he says that I have come to divide husband from wife, father from son, children, brothers, sisters, masters, slaves. There is nothing more divisive than Christ. But there is also nothing more uniting than Christ. 
Acts chapter 13, the first sending church, records several men from several different backgrounds, one of which was the friend of Herod the Tetrarch. How does, how does a man who was friends with somebody involved in the handing over in the crucifixion and the public humiliation of Christ, how does he, how can he be restored? It's Christ. How can Jonah, who ran when God told him to go to Nineveh, how can he be restored? Christ. How can Moses, a man who was not allowed to enter into the promised land physically, but in Hebrews chapter 11 says that he considered the afflictions of Christ more significant. He considered the afflictions of Christ more significant than all the treasures of, of Egypt. Because he trusted, he had faith in the promise of God and the word of God. If you read just one chapter over, we'll wrap it up. If you read one chapter over, in John chapter 4, you see the exact opposite interaction with a completely opposite individual. Nicodemus is a well-respected, moral, upstanding religious leader who needed Christ just as much as the adulterous, immoral, unnamed Samaritan woman. So what does this mean for us? What is the sufficiency of Scripture? How is that our security? Because the security of the believer is the sufficiency of Scripture. Well, it's because Scripture rules over our personal experience and opinions. It doesn't matter what the world says. It doesn't even matter what we think apart from the Word of God. Our worldview ought to not be shaped by our opinions, political affiliations, personal moral decisions. Those things do not have in themselves the ability to tell us authoritatively what is truth. Truth is not predicated by personal pronouns. Truth is truth. If you don't believe that, go to the bank. You go to the bank with $10 in your, sa- in your banking account and want to withdraw 1000 they're going to tell you no. You do not have that money here. Maybe it is somewhere else, but you do not have that money here. Truth is truth. It is, not, it is not dependent upon what we think is my truth, your truth, their truth, or opinions of truth. Scripture brings us into the very presence of God himself. Let us draw boldly with confidence into the throne room of grace. It reveals truth to us that we can hold fast to in a world of uncertainty. In my short time on earth, I have not seen a greater hatred towards certainty, towards the ability to affirm anything is true. Maybe it existed in the Roman Empire. Every empire before the Roman Empire was conquered by a greater empire. The Roman Empire fell because of its own immorality. 
but I've never seen in my time certainty under attack, the ability to know for certain what is true, so rejected and so vilified. But Scripture also anchors our hope in Christ when all seems lost. We have this anchor. We have this assurance that our faith is anchored in Christ and in Christ alone. Scripture equips us to fight against sin, and it also speaks life and light into our darkest trials. Basically what I'm saying, the security of the believer is the fact that Scripture comforts. It comforts the burdened heart and the weary mind and the tired body. It is our only hope. Christ is our only hope, and he has spoken to us in his word. So why do we not run to it? And that is not something that I say lightly. That is something that I must look in the mirror and face myself. I'll close with this. Um, I'm on Instagram. Uh, whatever your views about that are, that's fine. Um, but I follow a, an account that is pretty interesting. It it's shows a lot of different things in the world that you didn't know existed, and it kind of shows like, hey, this is pretty interesting. Maybe you want to know about it. But in this account, I read something that was so troubling and so sad. In Arizona, I believe is where it was, for the low, low price of $200,000, you can have your body or your loved one's body cryogenically frozen with the hope that one day scientists will be able to bring you back in the future. How sad is that? That somebody would, I mean, to some people, $200,000 isn't much, which is impressive. To some people, I can't imagine the trouble, the weariness, the hopelessness in your life driving you to the point to where you run the risk of spending your entire life savings on something that, quite honestly, may not ever happen. John's gospel ends in a way that is so accurate, so beautiful. The signs that were not recorded in chapter 2, that Jesus did not entrust his, himself to the people who saw them, those signs, same signs are written about here. John chapter 20, verse 30. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. So many that he, John probably didn't have time to write them all down. But other than that, that wasn't the purpose of why he wrote. He wasn't just writing to, to show all the entertaining, amazing things that Christ did. Verse 31, these are written, the signs are written, because every sign that Christ performed was a way of pointing back to the overall message be born again, repent and believe in the gospel. 
These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. He goes on and follows that up in his letter in 1 John, his epistle to so many Christians. He follows that up in John chapter 15, or sorry, 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know. that you have eternal life, that you may have certainty, that you may have comfort, that you may be equipped, that you may have an anchor greater than what is going on in the world around us, that you may know that you have eternal life. Hebrews chapter 11, how does this, how does this all happen? happen? How is this possible to have this assurance, to have this Understanding of who Christ is truly. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And how do we come to faith? Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Scripture is sufficient. Let us live that way in obedience to it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. Lord, man, we ought not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Lord, I pray that the meditations of our heart would be upon your word. Let the book of the law not depart from your mouth. Let you meditate on it day and night that you may do according to what it says and then you will see prosperity. Then you will see success, but not in material prosperity, not in physical success, but in truly understanding and in growing in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that, just as the Apostle Paul said, in all the knowledge and all the things that he had to, to boast in and to, to, to claim that could have been authoritative and sufficient as a Pharisee, as a true Jew, he counted it all as worthless. He desired to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Lord, that, may that be the desire of our hearts. May we run the race that we have here looking to Scripture as the authority for our lives and for our obedience to you. And I pray this in your name and in your name alone, Lord Jesus. Amen.